Hello and welcome to Should I Stay or Should I Go? The podcast providing you with expert career insight and advice from senior people in the fields of insurance and risk management to help you make the right career decisions. Hosted by founder and managing partner of Key Strategies LLC, Mike Tenenbaum. Featuring interviews with those at the top of their game, each podcast explores topical issues, coupled with specialist guidance on making your next move in the corporate risk management, insurance brokerage, and the insurance carrier sectors. A seasoned recruiter, Mike Tenenbaum has over 30 years of experience in sourcing top insurance and risk management talent for world-class Fortune 500 companies throughout the US. This experience makes your host the perfect person to kickstart the conversations that will give you the wisdom you need to decide. Should I stay or should I go? Before we begin with today's segment, I'd like to introduce our new sponsor. Hi, this is Patrick O'Neill, founder of Red Hand Advisors, a risk management technology consulting and advisory firm. We help Fortune 1000 clients understand their risk technology needs and then identify and optimize the best solutions. Recently, a client asked us to help them replace their current risk management information system. This is a very common request. During our initial analysis, we discovered that while their current system was not meeting their needs, it wasn't for a lack of capabilities. We learned that during the implementation, lower priority items were deferred until after the implementation and never revisited. Additionally, and a more common issue we see, is that their priorities had changed over time, but the system had not changed to meet these new priorities. And finally, we identified new features of the system that were not currently being utilized. I am joined this morning by Zach Finn, who is a clinical professor and director of the Davy Risk Management and Insurance Program at Butler University. Zach, welcome to the show. Good morning. Nice to be with you, Mike. Nice to have you, Zach. And as I keep saying in all my little uh, podcast episodes here, I I know you a a really long time as well. I think we met back in around 2006 or seven or so, didn't we? No, we go we go further. We first reached out to you, I want to say, in 1998 or 1999 as a, uh, I want to say, junior at Indiana State University. I was a risk and insurance major and had decided that risk management was going to be the career path for me of all the insurance and risk paths. And in the burgeoning, I mean, I commend you on your technology skills, my friend, because, you know, we just barely got the Internet at Indiana State around that time. And Key Strategies was one of the first websites I found in looking for who could help me get into the risk management field. And so you and I had a, a really nice, you were very nice. We had a nice conversation. I remember it in the lobby of my fraternity house as you told me that, you know, to stay in touch, you didn't place a lot of entry level folks, but let's build a career relationship. And we stayed in touch over the years. And you're right. In about 2006 is when you placed me as the, as the risk manager at Smucker, which, you know, you told me you'd place me in my dream risk management job. And you, in fact, did deliver. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. So that's great. I guess I I didn't remember that. That's interesting. You know, it it doesn't surprise me because I I meet a lot of people on on campuses and and talking to them as their students, because I find that they don't often, or at least back in in those days, the students didn't get a lot of exposure to the corporate risk management field and what the opportunities were. You know, there was a lot of uh, discussion about underwriting and brokerage and such. 
So I like to go and talk about, you know, the corporate risk management option as well, you know, for for long-term career planning, because there weren't too many entry-level jobs even in corporate risk management like there would be in, uh, in underwriting and brokerage. So that's great. I didn't know that my prediction was going to come true quite the way it did, but, you know, I'm glad that it did because uh, you've done pretty well for yourself. Yeah, no, it did. I mean, it's, you were someone I always liked to stay in touch with throughout my career, and it was a good sounding board as I looked at different opportunities. And, and yeah, I mean, I was amazed. I mean, it's like you said, you know, when you get an insurance degree, they say, do you want to be an underwriter, an adjuster, or a broker? And for me, I was like, wow, if I'm a risk manager, I can work with all those things. So I started to look at what it would take to be a risk manager. And I couldn't believe that there was someone out there dedicated just to recruiting in that space. Yeah, it's been an interesting field. I mean, just to be a recruiter in this field has been really interesting because, you know, I kind of cover the full gamut from uh, underwriting to brokerage to risk management and some other ancillary areas. But what I really like about risk management is that you really have to understand the full spectrum of risk and the full spectrum of what goes on in a company to understand what the risks are. And uh, it's been great, you know, for me just to even be a student of the business myself. I mean, you took it full circle. I mean, you started out in risk management. And actually, what was your first job in the field? Yeah, so my first job was as an intern and then as a risk analyst for the National Cash Register Company, NCR which was at the time headquartered in Dayton, Ohio. Now they're down in Atlanta, Georgia. But you know, I remember talking to my advisor, Dr. Maria Boos, about getting into risk management. And, and she explained to me that, you know, hey, there's only 500, Fortune 500 departments and these jobs are kind of few and far between. So you're going to have to really hunt for them. And so I had heard that previous student had had success at NCR with Jeff Hoke, just now the risk manager of Honda North America and was one of the, frankly, one of the greatest risk managers out there. I reached out to Jeff and we got to talking and next thing you know, I'm an intern. In fact, it was interesting. I was an intern at NCR in 1999, which for the older folks will remember is Y2K and you know all the, all the computers going to go nuts on, on New Year's Eve. And of course, as a 21-year-old sitting in a room where a bunch of executives are talking about ATMs shooting cash out on New Year's Eve, I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe this is what risk management is about. And also, I need a pillowcase and to be buying ATM on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, uh, risk management is about being an opportunist. Now, of course, none of that came to pass. I think in 2020, we're having the experience that we all thought we were going to have in 1999. Right. Right. Unbelievable. So you got one of the very, very rare entry level corporate risk management jobs. Yes. That's nice because back then, especially, there were very, very few entry-level risk management jobs. So what was that job like for you? Yeah, you know, it was really fascinating. I remember as an intern, they had a captive insurance company. And, and so, you know, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. So, I, you know, NCR was the cash. You knew NCR as cash registers and ATMs and some of these other things. And so they kept talking about this insurance company. And I remember going to the risk analyst who was from India State, Chad Trainer, great guy, he's still in the industry. And I said, Chad, do we do we sell insurance? Like, why do I keep hearing about this insurance company? And he's like, no, no, no. And he pulled me into a conference room and got on the whiteboard and, you know, kind of charted out how we retain risk and why we had an insurance company and how it was just for NCR. And so that was fascinating to me. I remember, you know, Jeff was very inclusive in his department, Jeff Hoke. And so we would get to attend a lot of the renewal strategy meetings. And, and you know, we would have these meetings out at, you know, NCR is a a very interesting company. Dayton, Ohio was the Silicon Valley of the last century, last turn of the century with Henry Ford and all those things going on. And John Patterson was friends with the Wright brothers and Henry Ford and all these different things. And so as a result of that, NCR had a lot of very historic properties. So one of my first jobs was to catalog and ensure all our fine art was properly insured. That took me out to, I remember doing a loss control tour of the Wright brothers home 
Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. They had the velvet rope up. They let it up for us. I sat in Orville's chair and put on his glasses, which I probably shouldn't have done. But, you know, what were you going to do? Nobody stopped me. It was a really interesting experience because what it was, was learning about this big company and all the different divisions that NCR had from their print media to they invented the terabyte and had teradata, data warehousing and a lot of cutting edge technology. And then 100, located in 121 countries, five corporate jets, tens of thousands of employees. I mean, just a massive operation and, and really understanding all the risks of this location. I mean, I remember going out to the data center that was built to withstand a five megaton nuclear blast because Dayton, Ohio's near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and was a target for, you know, military strikes. And so NCR had to prepare for that in their data center. And so, I, you know, for me, as an insurance and risk management student, you learn about the insurance and risk side of the industry and, you know, what all these risks are kind of without context and what all these different tools are. But you really need to understand a company and how they apply, like certain Risk management tools aren't necessarily applicable to NCR versus the JM Smucker company and vice versa. And so it, it really becomes a lot about getting with the, inside a company and understanding all they do and how they do it and where the most valuable, you know, processes and people and things are. And so, you know, I'm someone who's very intellectually curious. I like to watch those, you know, history channel shows on how it's made. And so for me to go into a, into a factory where they're making ATMs is fascinating. So that was my experience. And then of course, Overlaid with that was, you know, working in the risk management department during that time. We had Y2K. We had some some earthquakes in Japan. One of the first lines of coverage that I was responsible for, I was responsible for NCR's aviation insurance and the renewal. And, and we had a 915 renewal date. So I think you probably know where I'm going with this. And we had our renewal quote on 911 and had it rescinded and reissued later that day at four times the price. I mean, I had the experience of physically buying $200 million of aviation insurance on 911. I'm not sure very many people can say that and, and, and what that was like. And so, you know, even very early on in my career, those are some pretty amazing experiences. And that's one of the things about risk management is the departments are small. You have to understand basically everything about the company, all these different people you interact with in the insurance industry and what they do. And it makes you very broad and very deep, very fast. And, and it gives you a lot of experience pretty quickly that, you know, for folks that have to spend five, six years in other parts of the industry, they don't necessarily get quite the holistic view of things you get in risk management. And again, because the departments are small, you know, Jeff would have me working on million dollar claims and do an analysis of claims that, you know, if I was at a broker or an underwriter, they wouldn't let me sneeze on those files for a decade. And so that was my experience. I got to do a lot of things really early, really quickly. And it was every last bit of it was fast. That's awesome. And, you know, I have to say what I was thinking about a number of things while you were talking. And one of them is how important it is to work for the right person, especially early on in your career. And it sounds like Jeff was the absolute right person for you, the way he developed you. Yeah, I was very fortunate, but both Jeff Hoke and Dennis Wink, who is the risk manager of Hill and Brand Hill Rom, were both very technical risk managers and very kind in how they developed. You know, I was a pretty rough around the edges kind of guy in my young age. And you know, other people, maybe lesser managers would have maybe gotten rid of me, but folks like Jeff were very patient and work with me to develop those areas that needed development. So yeah, you're right. I think that's a huge part of it because later in my career, sometimes you don't have the same experience with as good a boss and you don't realize how important that is until you don't have it. No, absolutely. And I tell people all the time when they're thinking about taking a job, sometimes, and this happens a lot with brokers and carriers, you know, they say, oh, you know, I'm not a Marsh person. I'm an Aon person or I'm a, I am a Marsh person. I can't work for Aon and all that. And I'm thinking, you know, that's just so silly because... The companies is, is, well, that's 
technically who you work for. It's the group that you're in and it's the management that you directly work for on a day-to-day basis that you really should be concerning yourself with. And in any big company, there's good managers and not so good managers and what's going to affect your life on a day-to-day basis. Those are the things that you really need to be primarily concerned with. You know, I'm always talking to people about how they need to really work for the right person in the right group, doing the right kinds of things, because that's going to really make the biggest impact on your career. No, I think that's right. In fact, one of the things I started doing later in my career was, you know, if I could try and have dinner with my new boss and their spouse or partner, along with my wife, just to get to see them in that setting, right? People maybe let their guard down a little bit more around their spouse or partner, and you can kind of get a sense of who they are and who you're going to be working for in a little bit more of an informal setting, because you're right, it's nothing worse than you know, getting in somewhere where, you know, most of the companies having a great time and you just have to be in that one area where maybe there's different struggles or different personalities, but for whatever reason, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very important to make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into, you know, on a day-to-day basis. No question. You eventually, uh, you left NCR, you you went to uh, Henriot Group. I'm not too familiar with them. What was that job like? Yeah. So actually, it's a unique experience. I don't have it on my resume because it was so brief, but actually there was a little stop along the way. I went to a dot-com in San Diego as their risk manager. It was called Peregrine Systems. And I was there for roughly 10 months, helped them to set up the proper insurance program that they needed as a billion-dollar B2B asset management company. And and the, the issue that Peregrine ran into was they had Arthur Anderson accounting folks. And this is around the time Enron. So you kind of see, again, this is my career. Everything that happened over the last 20 years, I had kind of a front seat to it. But I was at a company that basically imploded the way Enron did for essentially the same reasons and had a you know boss that was an honorable person, maybe one of the only honorable persons in the company who told me that you know there's some things that went down that were not kosher. You might want to leave and get another opportunity. But it was very interesting. There, you know, we were going to do our DNO renewal and ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. We we're going to do our DNO roadshow in New York. And the day before we left, the news broke and our stock price dropped from like $17 to 25 cents. We were delisted I think at the end of the day, a lot of the executives at that company got some jail time or probation and different things. So, you know, again, it's one of those experiences, pretty hard to explain, you know, early on in your career, like, ah, I'm just going to leave that out. Uh, but it was very interesting. I mean, you know, being at a company and helping them set up risk management and then watching it all fall apart because of, you know, some of the shortcuts they took. And, you know, I knew a lot of the executives there and they, you know, I thought fundamentally they were good people. And I, I learned some ethical lessons there about, you know, this is a company I think very much got caught in the exuberance of the dot-com era and, and this need to meet shareholder expectations. And so they started cutting corners. And basically what they were doing is you can't recognize software revenue until it gets the end user and they were selling it to resellers and pumping up earnings and then reversing transactions. And then they got into forging and selling receivables. And it was just that slippery slope. And I could imagine these people, you know, cutting a corner to make earnings and then cutting another corner. And before you know it, they're in too deep and watching that all play out. And so again, interesting kind of side experience I had. It's where I left NCR. You know, I thought, well, I'm young. I got to go to California. They offered a lot of stock options. I mean, if it had panned out the way it was advertised to me, I'd probably be rich right now. And, you know, I didn't want to have any regrets. So I had the opportunity to do that. But what I found in there was that I didn't care for California and companies having challenges. So I ended up at the Henriac Group in uh, Lafayette, Indiana, a great company. I still, I'm actually having lunch with Henriac this week. A great regional broker, right? So Henriot services large middle market companies, kind of the backbone of the Indiana economy. And it was actually it was a really fascinating and wonderful experience for me because that's where I learned that not all the economy gets the same benefit of the kind of risk management we had at NCR and the kind of person 
like Jeff Hoke or, or Dennis Wink or myself. And I realized like, wow, there's a lot of companies out there that are $10 million companies, $50 million companies, billion dollar companies. And they've got Fortune 500 risks and Fortune 500 issues. But because of the size of their company, they don't have a risk management problem. They maybe don't know what they don't know. Maybe they have the same kind of risks as a Dow Chemical, but they're not large enough to have actually experienced a loss yet to where they're, they're ahead of it in the way they need to be. And so I was hired on into Henriot to be their kind of in-house risk manager for their largest clients. And so that was where I learned how to give the same risk manager presentation to the board of directors of you know Wabash National versus a group of doctors in a hospital group versus plumbers that are out in the field for an HVAC company and you know how the economy works and how middle market business supports what we do. So that was a very fascinating experience for me. You know, the only reason I left Henriot is because I was still young. I was maybe 24, 25 years old and was responsible for risk management for all these clients. And I felt that I hadn't learned enough yet. You know, I didn't have enough time with Jeff Hoke at, at NCR. And so I had to seek out a Dennis Wink. You know, I'd actually published an article around that time about being a risk manager in an insurance agency. And as a result of publishing that article, I started getting a lot of attention from recruiters. And that's how I got connected with, with Hill and Brand and Hill Rom and their risk management department. And, and again, great relationship with Henry. What I told them was, I love what I'm doing for you guys. You're the kind of place I would want to come back to later in my career when I've really gone deep with my risk management skills. But I need some more time in the oven, if you will, to bake this cake and learn about things like captives and alternative risk financing and, and really how some of the largest companies do it. Because I had this notion that if I could figure that out better, I could export that and bring it down to the middle market and make risk management more accessible to more companies. And frankly, you can see how that journey continued because I took it to academia to bring it down to the student level. Yeah, that's great. So what I'm picking up from you is that you, early on in your career, you got some exposure to a wide, broad spectrum of risks. Yeah, I really did. And that's really helpful, you know, on a lot of levels, but, you know, also at, at the academic level as well, when you're teaching students about risk and, uh, and how they need to think about risk. I want to talk a little bit later about how you got yourself into academia. I'm curious to know, you know, as you progress through your career, you know, it looks like your next position was where right. you spent a lot of time dealing with captives. And that was probably also really interesting for you. Yeah, that's actually what really drew me to join, you know, I say Hill and Brand, Hill Rama. You know, at the time I worked there, it was Forethought Pre-Need Life Insurance Company was one of the companies under Hill and Brand's umbrella, the Hill Rom Hospital Bed Company and the Batesville Casket Company. But I left my time at Hill and Brand as the benefits manager. And uh, one of the things I encouraged them to do was to basically split up those companies because what you had was a very high growth progressive healthcare company. And, you know, the time you're working benefits, that 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 entity is thinking, well, geez, we're in hospitals. We have the best benefits in the world. And South Bar in the CEO's office versus the Batesville Casket Company is a very mature business, very cost conscious and says maybe different objectives. But at the time I worked there, it was, you know, the Hill and Brand parent level with all these different disparate operating companies underneath it, which was really fascinating. And so because they had all these operating companies under underneath the Hill and Brand corporate umbrella. They used a captive insurance company to help with their risk financing program. It was about a $900 million captive as far as the capitalization behind it with different assets they had in the captive. And it was used to support deductible reimbursement programs for our casualty lines and to help us secure excess lines of coverage that maybe weren't available in the market for key risks. And so you're right. That was a that was a really fascinating position. I mean, it was it was basically everything I was doing at NCR in the risk manager department and working on renewals and doing business interruption analysis and things like that. But at the same time, I had this whole other subset of duties where I was running an insurance company. I mean, all the way down to the general ledger and you know, posting reserves and all this kind of stuff, dealing with the actuaries, helping to price our coverages. 
Um, and actually, one of the foundational experiences I had there was the opportunity to redomesticate our captain. We ran into some issues where it wasn't going to be feasible for us to be in Bermuda any longer. And I was the one who volunteered to redomesticate our captive. I think it was like 70 days or some insane timeline that had never been done before. And it was interesting because at the time I was doing that, I was getting my master's degree in risk and insurance. And what I found was, is, you know, okay, in order to redomesticate a captive, you have to wind down one legal entity and set up another legal entity. Well, I was taking a business law class where we were covering just those things at the exact same time. Yeah. And it was amazing because it's like, wow, well, this is really handy. Like I'm doing this and you're teaching this. And so it made me better in the classroom because I had better experiences to draw from. And it made me better in the real world because it hit the knowledge right in my face. And that was one of the reasons, frankly, why, you know, I tell students, you know, I worked my way through college. I maybe lost a few GPA points to beer, but I was a B student in undergrad, but I was a 397 student in grad. And, and part of it was developing discipline and study habits and things from being in corporate America. But, but the other part of it was learning while doing. And that's frankly, that was the genesis of the student run captive that we, you know, we'll talk about Butler and my career in academia. But, you know, one of the things we did here that we're known for is setting up an insurance company run by undergraduate students. And that is very much because at 26 years old, I redomesticated a captive in 70 days while I was in grad school. And, and the experience I had was there was a lot of synergy between the academic and the experience. And so that really stayed with me throughout my career. Yeah, that's awesome. I have to say, speaking for myself personally, I'm one of these people that's more of a visual learner. So, I mean, you could talk to me, you know, all day long. I don't really have a good skill at retaining things as well as if you show it to me. If you can demonstrate it, whatever it is, or put it on a whiteboard, and we could talk it through that way, uh, that has so much more meaning to me. So I can only imagine that learning something while you're actually doing it at the same time must have been tremendous for you. It, well, it was, and actually, what I think it was is, is a big part of the secret to solving the insurance industry talent crisis. Like, why don't students take to studying insurance and risk management? And the answer is, if you have bad finance, you know. You have a bad ROI. If you have bad accounting, you know. You're getting audited. If you have bad marketing, you, you can ask Peloton about that. I mean, it doesn't take much to get in trouble these days. Bad risk in insurance? Markets soft three out of every four years, or at least it was before the pandemic. If the fates are kind to you and you don't have any major losses, I mean, you can get by with, you know, weak risk management or a lack of understanding of what it is you should be knowing. And, and I think it makes it harder for students because without some sort of example or context to put it up against, it's nothing but hypothetical. You know, in a finance class, I could do a mock stock thing and, you know, you can build a portfolio and see what your ROI would have been. And same thing in accounting. I can give you some real accounting transactions and you can work with it the same way you would in accounting, but really without some sort of real life experience to bring along with it. Insurance is nothing but theory and big words, and it turns off a lot of people without being able to see what's really behind that, which is really quite fascinating. It's amazing. So I guess we're living at a time right now where there's all kinds of opportunities to talk about how insurance and risk management gets to play out, you know, just dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, this should be, honestly, this should be risk management's moment. In fact, one of the things that I'm a little disappointed in is that there's not more risk managers out there publicly advocating for the government to take more of a risk management approach to this pandemic. I mean, when was the last time you heard anyone in the government talk about, you know, restoration versus continuity versus preparedness versus emergency response? I mean, this is basically the world's largest uninsured business interruption claim. And Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is on record saying she didn't know pandemics weren't covered in business interruption policies. Students at Butler University know that. We left before the pandemic. That was the last thing we covered was business interruption and why it's not generally covered under pandemics aren't generally covered under those policies. And so 
one of the things we have to do as a society in order to have the kind of risk management where we can have a proper response to a pandemic and other things is close the educational gap between a Butler Jr. and, and the third most powerful person in the U.S. government. It sounds like there's at least a, a seminar or two in the making there for the government people. Oh, my gosh, you wouldn't even believe it. I, I've had the opportunity to work with the United States Congress on the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the guy who called it, you know, what was going to happen with shutting down and the need for this kind of backstop. And when you talk to folks in the Congress, it's clear they really don't understand how insurance works. I mean, I had someone, you know, a staffer tell me like, we don't want to provide a government backstop for pandemics because it's uninsurable. And, and I'm thinking, well, if you're going to bail us all out the next time this happens, you are insuring it anyway. And you're, you know, not insurance is self-insurance by default. It's un, you know unintended retention, but you're basically are insuring it in the most inefficient reactionary way possible, why wouldn't you want to set up some sort of backstop now and get ahead of this? And when you talk to them, they only think in terms of, well, this is a risk that can, you know, you can't spread it across policyholders. Everybody's having a claim at the same time. And my answer to that is there's two other ways to spread risk across time and across exposures. So you can imagine if the 65th Congress had done this in 1918, we wouldn't be in this boat. Maybe we don't have 100 years now or for the next one, but we can still certainly leverage time in a, in a government portfolio. And the other thing that they miss out on is the opportunity to spread it across risk. Why wouldn't you create, you know, one of the things you learn in insurance and risk is you're creating portfolios, right? We're spreading risk. And so why wouldn't you take terrorism and flood and pandemics, heck, cyber, let's get ahead of the next one before it happens and create a unified government backstop. And that would create the kind of soft mandate that people are looking for, right? If you're an essential business in New York with no flood exposure, but you need terrorism coverage, the only way you're going to get terrorism is if you kick in for flood and pandemics. And same thing for a flood exposed business in South Carolina. In order to get flood insurance, they got to kick in a little bit for you know pandemics and terrorism. Essentially how we insure volcanoes in the basic perils policy of property insurance. You couldn't sell volcano insurance standalones. The only people who would buy it would be people who live under volcanoes. And so the way they do it is if you need fire, lightning, explosion, windstorm, any of those things, you have to kick in a nickel for volcanic eruptions. And, and so those same opportunities exist in the Congress to think about risks in broader more sophisticated ways, but the you know there's there's only 82 insurance and risk programs. There's 5,000 graduates a year, and most of those people are out making money. They're not necessarily working in the government. And so I think when you're dealing with a financial crisis and a great recession, you have more opportunities for experts in the Congress and finance to be able to recommend or vet ideas than what you find in, in, in what is now an insurance crisis. There's not really anybody in the Congress who can do that. And so it's kind of the tail wagging the dog, if you will. Well, I could see that your career is going to end up taking a whole new direction soon if you keep talking like that. Well, yeah, I, I think it might. But, you know, it's one of those things. It's a really interesting problem that we're having right now. And I'm one of the few people who maybe had the experiences to think about that. I mean, you work in risk management and you understand business interruption and supply chains and contingent business interruption. It's not hard to, to understand the ramifications of this pandemic. And, you know, again, when a lot of the issues are insurance related, you know, I'm one of the few folks out there that's you know, run around with a bunch of insurance degrees and a bunch of risk management. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. I think it's really, really valuable and it's really interesting. And and I think, you know, aside from what you were just mentioning, uh, the thing that's really also interesting about this is we have a huge problem on our hands. This pandemic has, has really highlighted some real weaknesses in our systems and our checks and balances and how things all are interrelated worldwide. From an academic standpoint and a theoretical standpoint, it's, it's an awesome thing to work on to try to solve for. And it would really have a huge impact on the entire world. 
So uh, I commend you for taking that on and, and, and trying to affect some change. And hopefully some others will get behind you and, and work with you on that. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been interesting. I mean, if, you know, if, if folks Google my name, I had kind of a wild ride in March. I not to get too much off track, but I got a call from the Indianapolis Business Journal um, when the NCAA, I knew the NCAA was going to not play basketball for about an hour before the rest of the world. So I thought, well, number one, that's terrible and felt kind of cool because I you know, was in the know. But they asked me about, you know, what the insurance implications to the NCAA would be. They have a very smart risk manager, by the way. He, he just, it's out there. He brought in a $270 million claim recovery for the pandemic. So it just shows you the value of a risk insurance degree in education because someone like Brad Robinson at the NCAA, he called it and he had insurance for this. Now, obviously at the time I couldn't disclose that, but what I was talking about with them was I immediately had this notion that these economic losses are going to ripple through the economy. We're going to lose 40 million jobs. All these things are going to happen. I mean, the next day you see it at Butler. We don't know if we're going to lose $8 million from the pandemic or $40 million. I mean, $8 million is all the loss of room and board and art events and all that stuff. And, and $40 million is if students don't come back because their parents lost their job or they want to take a gap year because they don't want to go to college in a pandemic. And so I immediately thought, well, this is going to be terrible. So I, I actually went to President Danko and you know, told him my concerns. And he had me draft a memo that he sent to Governor Holcomb, which ultimately made it to the White House and into the Congress. So, um, yeah, it was very interesting. There was about a week or two there when everything was shutting down where, you know, ideas that I were putting out there were finding their way in the White House and the Congress. And it was fascinating. It was scary as hell. And it was very, it was very interesting. In fact, I remember telling my wife, like, I think we're in trouble here with this pandemic. And she's like, why is that? I'm like, because I'm part of the solution a little bit. And if I'm part of the solution, it's got to be a pretty damn bad problem. Unbelievable. I'm sure we could uh, go on and on about the pandemic and the solutions or the problems and, and such. I want to actually maybe turn to uh, how you transitioned from the corporate risk management world into the academic world, because you were involved kind of in founding the risk management program at Butler, weren't you? Yeah. In my career, you know, I finished my career as the risk manager at the Janus Walker Company and had some really wonderful experiences there. And I started to see more risk management gaps in my career. When I became a risk manager, I assumed that every other risk manager was like Jeff Hoke or Dennis Wink. And, and what I found was is that some were and some weren't. And, and in some cases, there were risk managers that maybe weren't necessarily qualified for their job. I mean, I had an owner of an MLB team once asked me what an umbrella policy was. And so I started to see a lot of really big gaps in the industry as far as talent and, and maybe less gaps, but maybe more improvement opportunities is what I would call them. And during the recession, I mean, what, you have an insurance institute that's in a major talent crisis. They need more talent. You have millennials that are living at home with their parents and enduring this great recession, which is terrible. And universities are looking for academic programs that have a high return on education that makes those tuition dollars worthwhile. And one of the things I've learned in my career is risk and opportunity are two sides of the same coin. And Opportunity creates risk, and risk can be often be solved with opportunity. And the insurance industry talent crisis is just as simple as a supply chain issue. You know, you hear all these things, why we have a talent crisis, why we have a talent crisis, because you don't have any academic programs. There's 2,000 accounting programs, there's 800 finance programs, there's 80 risk and insurance programs. There's 5,000 graduates a year for 500,000 jobs. When I went to college in the 90s, there were 15 programs. And that was, you know, 20 some years ago. So who's in charge of the insurance industry right now? People 20, 30 years in their career. What does that mean? It means they came of professional age in a time when these programs largely didn't exist. And so they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what a student can do with an insurance and risk management degree and how much faster they can get into the industry and how much deeper they can go because they've never seen it before. And I started to get frustrated by that. I couldn't understand why there more universities weren't setting up programs. I couldn't understand why more industry folks weren't, weren't supporting and recruiting from those programs. And I couldn't understand how anybody would want to live in their parents' basement, no matter how bad it was. 
And so I started thinking, well, academia would be a way to do that. I, I was involved in the student advisory committee for the Risk and Insurance Society. So I had the opportunity to pick a lot of the brightest scholars to go to the RIBS conference every year. And as part of doing that, you, you get to know all the different schools that are out there. And, and they're all great. I mean, Temple University, Florida State, Ball State, Indiana State, a lot of great insurance and risk programs out there. And I started to see, you know, what these programs were doing well and where maybe some of the gaps were. Because again, when I graduated college, you had a lot of experience or maybe some education and there weren't a lot of people. I was maybe one of the first generation of risk folks to come out to really have both an education and an experience in risk. And what my experience as a risk manager taught me is what I wish I would have known when I was in Indiana State. They covered a lot of great things that helped me to be as successful as I am today, but there were also some things, you know, they talked about certificates of insurance or some other captives didn't really come up very much. And so I started to see opportunities in these other academic programs where, geez, if you guys took advantage of this or uh, implemented that, you could really blow the lid off this thing. And so that's what led me to think about a career in academia. I was accepted into the PhD program at Florida State, or I think at least had applied with the understanding I was likely to be accepted. And I remember going to my wife and saying, hey, do you want to you leave this six-figure career at Smuckers and go with me to Tallahassee, Florida, and we'll live off a $20,000 year stipend while I do math for three or four years and become a doctor? And her answer was, you want to still stay married? Because I really don't want to do that. And so I started thinking, well, how else can I get in academia without a PhD and it's really, again, a master's degree is kind of the table stakes if you're thinking about a career in academia. And it's really about, I think, forging relationships with universities because universities do hire and do need people with clinical or practical backgrounds. It's not just about creating knowledge and research anymore. It's about how to use knowledge and how to distinguish good knowledge from bad knowledge. And practitioners, I think, are in, in the best position to be able to do that. So for me, that's kind of how I thought I would do it is I'll, I'll build a reputation as a risk manager and over, you know, 10 or 15 years, I'll, I'll weasel my way in somewhere. And, and it essentially happened a lot faster than that. I had, I'd written, I had saw an opening at Butler University and reached out to them and said, hey, you're asking for a PhD, you're asking for this, you're asking for that. I don't have any of that stuff. Let me tell you what I do have and why maybe you want to look at what I have versus, you know, every, it could be like every other program out there or maybe approach it from a different way. And Butler's a unique place. They're the kind of place that would be responsive to that. I mean, they're very big on experiential learning and experimentation in the classroom. And so the answer I got at the time was they had this endowment. They needed to hire a PhD first for accreditation purposes, but said, hey, we'll keep you in mind. And, you know, the need arises. And so sure enough, a couple of years later, they invited me into guest lecture. Actually, Gordon Hayward was in one of my risk management classes that I guest lectured in. So I got to give a lecture to future Celtic star. Yeah. I came in and talked about risk management at Smucker and, and, and then sat down with the dean and we talked about, you know, how I would establish and run a risk and insurance program and in partnership with the academics and the PhDs, but but also how that might look different than some of the other programs that were out there. And Butler really embraced that. They said, hey, we would some would be interested in doing. And so that's what led me to hang out my spears as a risk manager and, and come over here and, and basically help set up the degree and all the things that came after that's awesome. So I guess, while a lot of these programs are run and, and operated, frankly, by people who haven't had necessarily the practical experience in the field that you have had, that alone would differentiate your program from others in risk management and insurance. But how did you leverage your business experience and your hands-on risk management experience in developing this program? I'm curious. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, that part of it was, I guess, maybe easier for me. I don't, I don't know. The, the hardest part of it was getting used to being a professor and what does that mean? I mean, I, you know, one of the things as a risk manager is you do have to give a lot of presentations and, 
you know, I used to hear at Sprucker sometimes like, Zach, we just, we just need the solution. We don't need to learn about what all this stuff is necessarily. That's what you're here for. Maybe you'd be a good professor. But I did hear that a few times because I did relish, you know, like, hey, this is important stuff. You should really know about it, not just, you know, take the recommendations I've given you. But still, there's a big difference between presenting in a corporate setting and then running a classroom and all that that entails. And they just kind of drop you in. I mean, Butler had me, you know, I started out in our real business experience program. So a lot of our, actually all of our students run and operate a business their sophomore year. It's a class where it's really team-based. There's career professional mentors in there. And it's really a balance between classwork and real life. I mean, these kids, some of them make 70 grand selling different things that they'll do over the course of a semester. And so that's that's how I started in academia because there wasn't an insurance program to start. I mean, we had a professor teaching our intro classes. And so for me, that was helpful because that's a class that really straddled the line between business and academia. And it, and it takes a while. I mean, it took me quite a few, probably two or three years to where I felt like I was doing an okay job and maybe five or six years before I felt like I was doing a good job and maybe just only recently where I thought, I'm really, really good at this. And so figuring out the academic side of it was maybe more of a challenge. For me, I knew programmatically, like, you know, why, why don't people want to work in the insurance industry? What's the problem with the talent crisis? They don't know what the jobs are. I mean, you know, you got to love and respect the personal lines industry, but I hate their advertising. It's too gimmicky. It makes our industry a joke. It gives the perception that it's only personal lines insurance. It's only selling on price or emus or geckos or nonsense like that. And what it does is it doesn't belie the seriousness of this industry. Most of the world's on its ass right now because we're having what's largely amounts to the world's largest uninsured business interruption claim. And again, we don't want to get too much down on the pandemic, but but one of the major problems is most people didn't understand that pandemics weren't insured under business interruption policies, even to the Speaker of the House. And so my question would be, you know, you watch a finance commercial, they say investments may include risk of loss. They have all the kind of the fine print at the end of it. We don't do that in the insurance industry. When was the last time you ever heard Flo say, you know, your policy might include an exclusion. You might want to check it. You know, we do small business pandemics are covered. They don't do that. And and the result of that is it's, it's a shortcut way to get sales, selling on gimmicks and, and all those kind of things. But what it is, is it's lazy because auto insurance is going to go away. It's going to become Tesla and Honda and all these other folks are going to sell auto insurance as part of the vehicle because as vehicles become more autonomous, there's going to be more of a, an argument in court about whether it's the driver or the vehicle. And the best way to get out of that is to self-insure the product liability and then sell auto insurance to your customers use all your telematics and insure tech to do it way cheaper than State Farm and Liberty Mutual and cannibalize that whole personal lines auto industry. And that's exactly what the auto manufacturers are going to do. And so the insurance industry really needs to get its act in gear. They need to start spending the time to actually educate on what these products are, what these opportunities are, so that it's more than just, hey, here's Limu, Limu and Doug and you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's the big part of an insurance program. In order to get a student interested in a career in this industry, you have to explain to them. This is what it means to work at personal insurance versus commercial insurance. This is what it means to work in life and health employee benefits versus property casualty and risk management. This is what it means to be a subject matter expert versus a generalist. This is what it means to have a career as a risk manager or a buyer or a benefits professional. Here's what it means to be in the distribution system for products as an agent or an executive or subject matter expert. Here's what it means to all the different jobs in an insurance company. And by the way, now let's talk about the excess and surplus lines industry and reinsurance and retrocessional reinsurance. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the problem with our industry. It's greatest strength is its greatest weakness. All these cool things you can do. I mean, accounting is great, but, you know, one brand of accounting isn't that dramatically different than another. It's kind of like a Baskin Robbins. It's 32 flavors of ice cream. 
risk management is like a food court, right? You get all or a mall. There's just all kinds of different, widely different kind of jobs that are not as close. You know, there's things you could do as a workers' comp claims adjuster that would look nothing like, you know, doing reinsurance analytics or some of these other kind of things. And folks don't understand that. They don't understand that, you know, Jeff Hope, my boss, was doing satellite insurance at, at a telecom company and what it means to insure a satellite launch. That's pretty darn cool. They don't understand that the NFL, if it's going to die, is because volunteer coaches can't get insurance for concussions, and they're concerned about being sued for not following concussion protocols. You're not going to have volunteer coaches, no high school teams then, and then no college and no NFL. And so if you want to solve, uh, make sure that there's an NFL in the future, we, that's a risk problem. That's how do you insure concussions where you don't have a, you know, there's no test that says you definitely have damage from a concussion. It could be immediately apparent. It could you know, appear decades later in your life, like a Muhammad Ali. And so that's what makes that very hard to insure. It violates that tentative insurability of a determinable and measurable loss that has happened. And so it, it, to save the NFL, someone's got to figure out how to underwrite in concussions and how to, how to bring risk management around that exposure. That's a, you know, you start talking to an 18, 19 year old student or someone on the Butler football team, that's the most fascinating career that they never even heard of or didn't even know existed. And the fact that the insurance industry could have jobs like that and be in a position where the average person on the street doesn't know that is a fundamental failure. I don't understand why they don't, you know, even the pork industry, you know, it's, it's what's for dinner, right? The other white meat or got milk. There should be some uniform industry advertising about more about what we do and its critical importance in the economy. Because without that, you know, this is exactly how you find yourself in the position you're in now. If the industry had done more to educate consumers about property and business interruption, more people would have had it. More people would have been like Brad Robinson in the NCAA. They would have had coverage for pandemics if they wanted it. And the fact that that hasn't happened is a failure of the industry and education, fundamentally. Well, you know, it's interesting that you talk about that because, you know, there is a lot of discussion going on about insurance having a bit of a branding issue, which ties into what you were just saying. And I do agree that, you know, a lot of people out there who are not involved in insurance that really have no idea what's involved in this career track. So you, you raise some really, really good points. We're back with Pat O'Neill from Red Hand Advisors, continuing his story about his recent client engagement. After completing our needs analysis and system review, instead of recommending a new system, we proposed a plan to improve the usage of the existing system. Once we had agreement on the key priorities and desired results, we served as a liaison between the existing vendor, ensuring that both sides understood the goals and objectives and saw the project through to completion, saving the client significant time aggravation, and money, and thus avoiding going down the path of scrapping their current system and going through a lengthy implementation. To learn more about Red Hand, just visit our website at redhandadvisors.com forward slash key, and be sure to download your free copy of the Remus Report. It's got a wealth of great information. One of my thoughts over the last few years is that I really felt like in these insurance and risk programs, that they need to bring more industry people in to do more case study work. And, you know, sort of along the lines of what you were saying earlier about, you know, learning while you're doing and doing while you're learning. If you have a real life example of an actual business case, such as concussions and how you deal with that from a risk perspective and an insurance perspective, that makes it a lot more interesting for students. And then if you can do a better job, the universities can do a better job of exposing students to risk management. Some business schools require that you take a risk management class in order to get your business degree. Not every school does that, but I think if more schools did that, 
that would be really helpful. So there's a lot that can be done. There's no question about it. One last question I did have for you actually is in your experience as a risk manager, as well as in your experience in interacting with senior risk professionals in the industry, what are you hearing about in terms of the skill set that risk professionals will need in the years to come? Yeah, I'm hearing a lot about that, actually. There's a lot of change coming in risk management. I think a lot of it is around technology. When you look at what's out there from an insure tech perspective, it's really leveled the playing field. I, I actually always, I had this notion. I remember, I remember when I got the job at Smucker. Sometimes when you're in an interview, you just kind of know when you answered that question, it's going to get you the job. And I remember telling the, the CFO, Mark Belja, you know, he asked me about my philosophy on insurance. And I said, look, Mark, my job is to buy as little insurance as humanly possible. We're going to buy what's required by law, what's required by contract. I'm going to understand our risk bearing capacity as an organization, what you and others, you know, risk tolerance are. But within the confines of those parameters, we're not going to buy insurance unless we absolutely need it. Because, you know, I think a lot of corporations buy insurance they don't need because they don't understand how to identify and measure the risk well enough to give them permission not to buy the insurance. And so a lot about, I think a lot of risk management is going to center around less reliance on insurance. I mean, as we found with the pandemic, right? The one time that businesses really needed business interruption insurance for a large part, it wasn't available to them. And so what does that mean, right? How do you run a cruise line or a non-essential business in a world where there is no business interruption insurance for a pandemic-related shutdown? And the answer is you got to get creative. Um, you know, that's why I get frustrated when the insurance industry said pandemics are uninsurable. I used to insure a, a billion-dollar plant in New Orleans with a $600 million flood exposure. And you could scour the planet and only find $50 million worth of flood insurance. And so as far as the insurance industry is concerned, they're done. I'm like, all right, there's our $50 million. See you. We're going to the pub. Well, that's not when the risk manager's job ends. We still have $550 million of contingent liability to be managing. And so we get that's when we get to work. And a lot of risk management is about creating insurance, creating alternative risk finance vehicles for those things where the insurance industry just says, here's our capacity. We're checking out. We're going to the pub. See you later. And so that's why I think that skill set is going to become more important. I have this whole notion of what I call monetized risk management. Again, there's three ways to spread risk across policyholders, across time, and across other exposures. And so if you're a company like PayPal, you got a huge cyber exposure, what's to say that the cyber market isn't going to end up exactly where the business interruption market is, right? We had like a 14-year-old kid hack Twitter and send out messages in the vice president's name. You know, what's to stop a wide-scale hack that shuts down the economy in the same way the pandemic has, but digitally? I would argue that'd be a lot worse. I mean, the country's being held together by Zoom and Netflix as it is. And when you start to think about, okay, a cyber is the kind of exposure where the only people are going to buy it are the ones that really have the exposure. And if there's a loss, it's probably going to impact a lot of people at the same time versus fire, which, which maybe doesn't. So what does that mean? That means if you're a company that has that type of cyber exposure, you've got to think about other ways to manage your risk, right? Um, you maybe want to start selling coverage to, you know, Amazon. Amazon's maybe sell, start selling insurance to Amazon sellers. Tesla sells insurance to to drivers, and it, it's basically that taking that risk and making an opportunity, right? We talked about this with, with Tesla. The, the Elon Musk does not want to, you know, and this is a lesson for the insurance industry, by the way, you don't get rich in business by suing your customers or being sued by your customers. That's an important lesson to keep in mind, and Elon Musk knows that because he doesn't want to be in a courtroom arguing with a Tesla driver about whether it was them or the autonomous vehicle. And if he sells them insurance, it doesn't matter anymore. It's all Tesla money. And what happens is, is when Tesla starts selling insurance to third parties like their customers, they start to create the kind of fact pattern in a captive where they can sell themselves insurance, retain other lines of insurance and get huge tax deductions. And so I can see a world where Tesla selling insurance to Tesla drivers so they can then sell themselves pandemic insurance. 
or business interruption insurance or cyber insurance or intellectual property insurance. You know, same thing for Amazon. If an Amazon seller acts rogue or goes off the reservation, Amazon's probably going to get sued anyway. Why not just sell insurance to those Amazon sellers, collect enough premium to cover any losses that happen, make a few bucks, and use all that third-party risk and insurance to then create captive programs that allow you to retain other lines of coverage and then use things like insurance link securities and reinsurance to spread that risk around through the rest of the economy. Well, you know, that that's what go things like that have been happening for a long time. That's how McDonald's runs, right? McDonald's franchisees don't buy insurance from Liberty Mutual, they buy it from McDonald's. And what's happening now is with all the insure tech and the technology that's out there is it's lowered the bar to be able to do that now. The the ability for a company like you know Tesla or Honda to add a few people to their risk management department, commercialize their captive and cannibalize most of the personalized auto insurance market. I mean, that's literally a lot easier than I think personalized auto insurers even understand or respect. And that's going to be the future of risk management, I think, is I think you're going to see a lot of hybrid companies. You're going to see Amazon as Amazon and an insurance company. I think you're going to see that in trade associations, right? If you're a restaurant or a theater right now, a lot of the Save Our theaters or those events are going on. If you're a small theater, you don't have the ability to set up a captive or develop a self-insurance program. But what you can do, create a group captive with other theater owners that are in the same position or use your industry associations. And again, these industry associations are going to be able to use InsureTech to come in and set up greenfield ground up insurance companies that operate on a lot thinner margins than traditional insurance companies. I mean, you hear this. I talk to InsureTech software companies that say, hey, some of these blue chip insurance companies have 300 legacy systems and we could design a ground up system with, on one platform for one one hundredth of the cost. And, and that technology has never been out there like that. So what I hear is the future of risk management underwriting is coding. It's understanding the application of insure tech and risk tech and all these, all these other things that can allow us to better understand our risk in order to give ourselves permission not to buy insurance or in order to allow us to better understand our risk in order to create new ways of spreading it around the economy. And I think all that's good for risk managers. I think unless the insurance industry gets a little bit more on board with things, it may be bad for, for most of the legacy industry. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I see a lot of what you're saying already happening. Major auto companies, you know, beyond Tesla are actually getting in the insurance business. I see banks are getting back into the insurance business. And I see a lot of opportunity out there for risk managers to become entrepreneurs and have funding behind them from these major organizations. And these companies are all looking for people who have the ability to develop insurance programs for their customer base. So it's all, it's all playing out right now. No question about it. So Zach, this has been uh, really insightful. Uh, we could go on and I think I'm going to have to have you back because we didn't even get into your student run captive program <laughs> that you set up, which in and of itself could be a whole episode. So I look forward to uh, having you back on. Maybe we'll talk about that and some other things. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah, no, listen, I appreciate you having me. And, and frankly, I appreciate all you've done as a mentor and, and someone who has been a big part of my career. So for folks that, you know, are going to work with you, I would highly recommend that you've been a great partner to me over the years. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So you have yourself a great day. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Brought to you by Key Strategies, LLC, the U.S. Insurance and Risk Management Recruitment Specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. And if you have any specific career-related questions, please post them or send an email directly to Mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com. He may even answer your question on the show. 
When you subscribe, you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available. Hope you join us next time.